Welcome back to New World Next Week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato from MediaMonarchy.com. That data might have been changed to better fit a hypothesis. We've got that story plus a food crisis by design. But first, trauma and stress, not chemical imbalance, likely the cause of depression. Contrary to popular belief, depression is likely not caused by a chemical imbalance and is instead seemingly caused by more trauma and stress, scientists from University College London found after reviewing decades' worth of data in a new, peer-reviewed umbrella review published in Nature Molecular Psychiatry. The Umbrella Review aimed to cover all relevant studies published on serotonin and depression, with the studies covered involving tens of thousands of participants. Research that compared levels of serotonin and its breakdown products in the blood or brain fluids failed to find a difference between people diagnosed with depression and healthy control group participants, all according to the review. Research on serotonin receptors and the serotonin transporter the protein targeted by most antidepressants, found weak and inconsistent evidence suggesting higher levels of serotonin activity in people with depression, although the researchers say that that is likely explained by the use of antidepressants by these people. The Serotonin Theory of Depression, a systematic umbrella review of the evidence. James, this is just how we begin to get into the crisis of scientism on this episode. Exactly right. And what a crisis it is, because, of course, we've just gone through the two years of people telling us to trust the science, listen to the science. The science speaks with a single unified voice on everything and is always 100% right, even when it's wrong, because that's what science is about. It corrects itself. So uh, it's interesting to see the reactions to the, uh, first of all, the articles about the study and then the reactions to those articles, like what we get from the uh, the hipster-run, uh, Disney-owned Vice.com. Oh, they're so cool and edgy and on on board with every good, proper, right-think sort of uh, take on the, the news. Uh, for example, in this, the new study on serotonin and depression isn't about antidepressants. And the uh, Vice.com is here to wag its finger at you and say, guys, this study doesn't even really say anything new. We already knew it wasn't about chemical imbalance. Really? Well, you could have told the rest of the public about that, right? Because 99 people out of 100 would have told you, even a, even a month or two ago. Yeah, it's chemical imbalance, right? That was the myth we were sold in the public. And this study is just here to say, yeah, it's not true. But we already, yeah, it's true. We already did know that. In fact, uh, there are pretty much no neurobiologists or anyone would argue that at this point. Um, but now it's out in the open. So what does this study really tell us? Because as Vice.com reminds us, this isn't telling us anything about antidepressants. And they go on to say, uh, well, just because uh, the... the uh, the serotonin levels that aren't uh, don't seem to be indicative of depression. That doesn't mean antidepressants don't work, right? Well, okay, okay. So for some reason, somehow these SSRIs and antidepressants are magically working, although we don't know why or how, right? Is that the argument that you're going to go with? Uh, well, how could it? How could they possibly work if? We don't even know the mechanism of their action, or the mechanism, the supposed presumed mechanism of their action doesn't actually make a difference. Well, how about this? Back in 2008, Initial Severity and Antidepressant Benefits, a meta-analysis of data submitted to the Food and Drug Administration, um, 
an article that goes on to conclude, drug placebo differences in antidepressant efficacy increase as a function of baseline severity, but are relatively small, even for severely depressed patients. The relationship between initial severity and antidepressant efficacy is attributable to decreased responsiveness to placebo among very severely depressed patients, rather than to increased responsiveness to medication. In other words, there is a placebo effect that is, uh, that can account for much, if not all, of the supposed benefits of these antidepressants. Um, now, there is a- almost parallel to the, the study that was just released and the way it's being covered by the vice.coms and what have you of the world right now. That study from 2008 received all sorts of kickback at the time. Oh, how dare you publish this study d- daring to question the efficacy of antidepressants? And the author of that study wrote about that in the uh, McGill Journal of Medicine, Challenging Received Wisdom, Antidepressants and the Placebo Effect, at which he hits back against all the people who were tus- tusking him for daring to point out that antidepressants may be clinically insignificantly different from placebos. Um, and he points that out in great detail. It's actually, for a scientific article, it's actually quite interesting, and I would suggest people read through that. Um, as for uh, more information about this latest study and the findings regarding it, I will point people to an article by former Corbett Report guest Bruce Levine. Do you still believe in the chemical imbalance theory of mental illness, where he points out and gives examples of how basically every major uh, professional association and every major leader in the psychological field has long since abandoned the chemical imbalance theory. It's just the public was never informed about that. I will also throw in a big two-hour lecture by Dr. James Davies on psychiatry and big pharma exposed from way back in the day, back in 2019. Remember those heady days when you were still allowed to point out that big pharma is one of the most disgusting, horrible uh, industries on the planet, one of the most hated up until 2019 because they clearly prey on people and try to medicalize normal behavior in order to sell them more drugs. Dr. James Davies points that out in great detail in that lecture, which is definitely worth your time. Thank you to Vinny Caggiano for pointing me in the direction of that lecture. I hadn't seen it before, but it's definitely worth watching as we swirl around these issues. And of course, this always goes back to, well, okay, so what's the harm? if Even if it is just placebo, what's the harm in taking these SSRIs, right? I mean, at least it's doing something. Oh, well, there might be some harm to SSRIs, like increased uh, suicidal ideation and people going off of the meds and going crazy. Mass shootings and SSRIs? Ever heard about any of that? Well, I have done work on that in the past, so I'll point people in that direction as well. Anyway, this is, at the very least, it's good that this is being put in the public spotlight. As as people are pointing out, maybe this is nothing new, but hey, Clearly, given the reaction to it, it's news to a lot of people. Very interested to see if or when we ever find out about some of the most recent high-profile shooter events, that weird crimo guy, and whether or not, you know, what what psychotropic meds are they on. I can remember way back to 2019, I believe that was also back when medical malpractice was the third leading cause of death. Do not try and look that up again on the search engines. It's all been scrubbed and is pretty much gone. If we could break this down to the simplest point, it almost seems like the ones that traumatize and stress us out are lying to us about why we're depressed. 
Hi, yi yi. New World Next Week, episode 491, continues with the crisis of scientism. And James, this is, I think, why, why we love, why we love doing this. So, if we throw out all of that research, does that mean we embrace this other bit of research? Which research do we embrace, and which do we throw out as being manipulated pharma garbage? Manipulated Alzheimer's data may have misled research for 16 years. The key theory of what causes Alzheimer's disease may be based on manipulated data which has misdirected dementia research for 16 years, potentially wasting billions of pounds, as this does come from the Telegraph, a major investigation suggests. A six-month probe by the journal Science reported shockingly blatant evidence of result tampering in a a seminal research paper which proposed Alzheimer's is triggered by a buildup of amyloid beta plaques in the brain. Amyloid beta plaques. In the 2006 article from the University of Minnesota published in the journal Nature, scientists claim to have discovered a type of amyloid beta which brought on dementia when injected into young rats. It was the first substance ever identified in brain tissue which could cause memory impairment and seemed like the smoking gun. The Nature paper became one of the most cited scientific articles on Alzheimer's ever published, sparking a huge jump in global funding for research into drugs to clear away the plaques. But the journal Science Investigation claims to have found evidence that images of amyloid beta in mice had been doctored in allegations branded extremely serious by the charity Alzheimer's Research UK. Elizabeth Beek, a forensic image consultant brought in to assess the images, told the journal Science that the authors appeared to have pieced together parts of photos from different experiments. Your godlike scientist photoshopped some stuff. The obtained experimental results might not have been the desired results, and that data might have been changed to better fit a hypothesis, she said. James, in other news, CRISPR gene editing may cause permanent damage. Caution from researchers at Tel Aviv University. CRISPR gene editing can damage the genome and might trigger cancer, which I'm pretty sure we've reported on here. I think it's all been in the last couple of years. Oh, it may cause a bunch of cancerous mutations. And in completely unrelated news, Biden tells reporters he has cancer during climate change events in Massachusetts. James, a lot, a lot to unpack there. Biden was crispered. Apparently, that's that's what we can run with. No, but you're right. Again, uh, yeah, a lot of this stuff isn't new, new. We've we've been reporting on it here for years, and we're too nobody sitting in our home, you know, doing this from in our pajamas, right? Like, but but again, the difference between what is known and what is known to the public is a wide chasm, and one might wonder why that is. It's almost like the uh, the media plays a part in in perpetuating these falsehoods by running cover for the big pharma funded shills who are doing experiments and research that just happen to find things that are ka-ching ka-ching for big pharma and their their attempts to sell drugs. One thing that jump, jumped out at me from that Forbes article we're citing from about the Alzheimer's research, the controversial drug Aduhelm, approved last year by the FDA, was aimed at breaking down amyloid beta. Indeed, in a highly unusual step, the FDA approved the drug explicitly to further amyloid beta research 
even though it acknowledged there was little direct evidence Adjuhelm provided any clinical benefit to people with Alzheimer's. That's the FDA for you, folks. Evidence, schmevidence. Who knows what it's doing or why? Anyway, you're approved. Go for it. You know, make some money off of this. Ka-ching, ka-ching. This is the state of the science. And it should be no surprise to people, for example, who have read one of the most cited research papers of the past couple of decades, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, by John Ioannidis, published in 2005. If that article is familiar to you, then you have been paying attention. Uh, You've raised the specter a couple of times already, James, so let's uh, put it on the table. I did do episode 353 of the Corbett Report podcast back in 2019, Back in 2019, that mythical time again. The Crisis of Science, where I talked about Ioannidis' paper and some of the implications of that, and these types of things, completely fake research, faked, fudged data, data that's been manipulated to um, to basically provide benefit to Big Pharma and others with vested interests in that. But I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't follow that reference to the Crisis of Science up with what was the next edition of the Corbett Report, episode 354 on solutions, open science. Because there is a different model, a different way we could be pursuing something that is actually more in line with the scientific ideals, or as as much as we can get in line with those. It has nothing to do with this industry that is now functioning in lockstep. The, the government regulators, the academic journals, the, uh, the big pharma and other vested interests that are investing in this research all have a literal investment in keeping important knowledge from you and keeping people from poking holes in their cockamamie theories that have no evidence to support them. And then it, it's up to some researcher decades hence to come along and say, you know, actually there was nothing to that, or actually that data was fudged. This is, this is insanity. And unfortunately, over the past couple of years, it has gotten infinitely worse because, because of the biosecurity paradigm that they're bringing in. And now, now, the very people who a couple of years ago would have said, yeah, of course, big pharma are evil, horrible corporations that are just trying to milk the public, are the very people who are rolling up their sleeves and saying, trust the science, I love big pharma. It's an incredible psyop that's been rolled out over the past couple of decades, and or couple of years, and, uh, well, we're still here, we haven't changed, we're still reporting the same, it's just everybody else has changed, apparently. That's what that's what gets tough, man. I mean, literal friends and colleagues that we worked with in Portland, Oregon, on the march against Monsanto. Oh, they're running for office and are totally down with the biosecurity pharma scam. James, I think the other thing behind all the statistics, behind all the research papers, are families ruined by this crap, and it pisses me off. Um, in other news, I mean, we you know you. People wake up and maybe people go to sleep. So we lose some of those people that we knew in Portland, Oregon. We lose some people who say, oh, you suck, alt-media, because you're not doing this or that. Meanwhile, other friends that you maybe hadn't heard from in a long time suddenly texting you about, hey, have you seen what they're doing to the skies? Hey, no, I think they're messing with our brains with all these frequencies. So we, we it's, e- I guess, easy come, easy go. We, we win some, we lose some, James. How about maybe a little bit of positivity after we punch through a little bit of the food crises? Our third and final story on this New World Next Week, episode 491, Sowing Hunger 
reaping profits, if that sounds familiar to the previous two stories. But this is a food crisis by design, and we take this from navdanyainternational.org, and of course, for the last, James, how many, nearly 13 years, everything we say, always sourced and cited down in the show notes. Since the invasion of Ukraine, headlines have been dominated by the warnings of the risks of global food supply shortages and rising global food prices, all somehow, I guess, suddenly due to that conflict. But according to many international groups, there is currently no risk of global food supply shortages. So why are so many countries now facing an increased risk of food insecurity and even famine in some cases? What is crucially being overlooked by most diagnoses of the current food crisis is how the problem doesn't lie in lack of supply or lack of market integration, but instead in how the food system is structured around power kind of like, you know, your health system and your medical system. Detailed in this new report by Navdanya International is, in fact, how we've already been facing a food crisis and a malnutrition crisis long before, of course, the current thing everybody changes their social media pictures to. From the colonial era, which saw the beginning of extraction and exploitation of small farmers to the advent of the Green Reaper Revolution, and the concretizing of the globalized free trade regime, we've seen the deliberate destruction of small farmers and food sovereignty in favor of corporate power. Therefore, it's no coincidence that today we're listening and watching the third major food crisis of the last 15 years. What the Russian-Ukrainian conflict has once again laid bare, as it is doing, I think, in lots of other different levels, James, is just how fragile the globalized food systems are. The current globalized industrial agri-food system is a food system that creates hunger by design, kind of like treating the sickness as a business opportunity. Worst of all, international institutions, government, and corporate actors are using the current crisis as they have used every crisis to further consolidate their control over what is obviously a failed model. False solutions and the redundant calls for failed approaches abound in headlines and international responses. We will include the giant PDF for you, Sowing Hunger, Reaping Profits, a Food Crisis by Design, but the positivity. Brock also wanted us to mention some of the solutions from that PDF. Because, of course, we can just, you know, we could do headlines of this place burned down and this place ran out of this. But there are some positive moves to be made. And James, again, this isn't new news. I played a decade-old episode of our old Food World Order shows. People might not remember, there used to be Corbett Report Radio. You did a live radio show, and on Thursdays, you let me join in, and we talked about Food World Order news. And so this positivity, some of the moves that we can make aren't exactly new, but they always, of course, are worth repeating. Promoting local and organic healthy food, farmers markets, CSAs, plant gardens everywhere, community gardens at schools, prisons, hospitals in the cities, to the countryside, and most importantly, save, grow, and reproduce traditional seed varieties. James, a little bit of positivity on this episode? James, I am loath to put the not unmitigated part in the good news story. (laughs) But here it goes anyway, because this is a fascinating exploration of how an article or a study can be right and wrong at the exact same time. So let's get into this. I I hope I can do justice to this. Maybe I need to uh, explore this in more detail. But okay, generally speaking, I think 
you and I are on in accord that this is right, that absolutely there is the big food, big ag uh, takeover of the global food su- uh, supply system that has been put in place that is profiting from selling synthetic chemicals and crap to farmers in order to um, benefit this system. And now that system is failing. We need we need to go back to locals and organics and things like that. Okay, yes. But there's there's a deeper level to this. So, for example, when you're on that navdanyainternational.org article about the study, at least as I record this, there on the sidebar, the nitrogen problem in agriculture. Okay, let's click on over to that. The nitrogen problem in agriculture. The nitrogen problem in agriculture is a problem created by synthetic nitrogen fertilizers made from fossil fuels. Nitrogen fertilizers contribute to atmospheric pollution and climate change in the manufacture and the use of fertilizer. Climate change. You know what? Come to think of it, hmm, nitrogen... Where have I been hearing about the nitrogen problem in agri... Oh, that's right. I've been covering this the past couple of weeks in the newsletter. We're all Dutch farmers now. We're all Sri Lankan farmers now, talking about these exact types of restrictions that are coming in in country after country after country all around the globe, seemingly simultaneously, not just in the Netherlands, Canada, Argentina, Ireland, Sri Lanka. You pick your country. They're all... Abiding by these, this goal of twenty by twenty thirty, we're gonna cut all these emissions, and it's much worse than most people know because most people, being normal human beings, don't know about the Colombo Declaration on Sustainable Nitrogen Management or the Global Methane Pl- Pledge or the uh, World Economic Forum's Strategic Partnership Framework with the UN to accelerate the 2030 agenda, and all of these other pieces of the puzzle, the Paris Agreement, and all of these things that are all pointing in the exact same direction as Navdanya International? Now, that's that's interesting, isn't it? And I guess the first level of analysis, if we want to just go by genetic fallacy, you could say, well, Navdanya International, founded by Vandana Shiva, Club of Rome member, hmm, I, I don't know, might be something to w- look in there. But I think there's there's... There's a deeper level to this analysis because there's the difference between yes, absolutely, we should be sourcing and 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 to the extent possible eating local organically grown food. Absolutely. But there's such a gaping maw, vast chasm between that type of system and the type of system that we're on that if you just shut down this system that we're on right now overnight, that's going to lead to Many, many people starving to death. You can't just shut it off. It's like if the anarchist gets elected president of the United States, his first action should not be to just shut off all welfare system. Just shut it all off. Because that will be genocide. People will die of it. First, you shut off the military-industrial complex and the corporate uh, bloat and all of that. And eventually you wean people off of the welfare state. But if you shut it off all at once, you are going to hurt people. And I think that's that's part of this. So there's a much, much, much bigger story to all of this. You have to understand the history of, say, the Green Revolution, which I covered last year, the Gates-Rockefeller Green Revolution scam exposed. And that 50, 60, 70-year history now of the implementation, basically the government under Eisenhower and others coming in and stealing your taxpayer money to give it to the Rockefeller crony corporations and the big ag corporations to sell their synthetic chemicals and crap all around the world in order to create this infrastructure for the food global food supply system that has left us in this state. Now the the UN and 
uh, all of these individual governments and the Paris Agreement, and all of them are coming along to shut off the spigots to that system, turning it all off all at once, exactly like Navdanya International wants, question mark, and all of a sudden there's crisis, 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 food supply crisis, uh, farmers kicking off, they're, they're going to go out of business. It's almost like they are deliberately collapsing the, the system that they've created in order to generate the crisis so that they can then swoop in and we know what the solution to this crisis is going to be. It's going to be the synthetic meats and the GM and all of that. They're going to, they have the solution already waiting. They just need the crisis for it. This is the crisis they're generating by ginning up Oh, nitrogen is the global thermostat. Oh, they're going to jack up the weather. See that heat wave in the UK? That was nitrogen, I tell you. We've got to stop it. So there's a much deeper, bigger story going on here. And, you know, I, again, I think the Navdanya article in the study is right. But I think it's also missing some incredibly important pieces to this uh, puzzle. And is it missing those pieces on purpose? Is it is it is it incompetence or are you in on it, James? Is this basically could this sort of be the crypto psyop for food? Could be. Could maybe maybe plant that plant that seed, so to speak. We can ruminate on that, I guess. Unless you just want people to die. So this is a lot of things to think about. I was hurriedly making notes there. Even normies might have to think. If a war in Russia is messing up my food and oil supply, maybe my food and oil supply was already messed up to begin with. We were going to cover the Dutch farmers last week, but my internet, much like most of Santa Fe's, croaked. Um, but yeah, speaking of, like, this is like the 21st century of the Oregon Trail game. You've died of climate change sads. And they flip a switch, and suddenly what you used to luxuriate and hang out on the beach on now will suddenly kill you. It has nothing to do with the warp speed cures everybody took. Hi, hi, hi. Pardon my mess. Even messier than usual, I know. We are moving. Still, I believe, just within the northern New Mexico area for now, huge thanks to all the folks for sending all the real estate tips. Please keep them coming. James at MediaMonarchy.com. Uh, in other news, there will be tons of new stuff hitting the New World Next Week store. I mean, we've even had to, in some ways, kind of back off a little bit to not maybe overwhelm folks. I will, again, remind you and implore you to go sign up for email notifications at NewWorldNextWeek.com so you'll know the moment we go live with this charming cap. Brand new Media Monarchy baseball caps and a whole lot of other stuff coming very soon. I was going to start blabbing all about it, but I think we should maybe hold off just, just a little bit, James. That is New World Next Week, episode 491. Tilt the cap down a little. Let people see the nice design there. Yeah. Looks that is the Media Monarchy logo. Looking good. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, I'm glad your internet is working this week, and hopefully it'll <laughs> be working again next week. Anyway, we'll try to be here next week. Uh, I think that'll do it for today. James, thanks for the three stories. All right. Thanks so much, buddy. Take care.